Welcome to Founder Stories, the podcast, conversations with David Adelsheim and the 10 founding wine families of Oregon's North Willamette Valley. During each episode, David Adelsheim, founder of Adelsheim Vineyard, will sit down with another early pioneer to recount the collaboration and formation of the Willamette Valley wine industry over the last 50 years. Today, hear from David Adelsheim and Bill Fuller, founder of Tualatin Vineyards. Enjoy! Bill Fuller had already worked in the lab at Italian Swiss Colony, gotten an MS in enology at UC Davis, and had been the winemaker at Louis Martini Winery for nine years. He was asked to evaluate vineyard sites in Oregon for an investment banker. They became partners in a 65-acre site northwest of Forest Grove in 1972, which they named Tualatin Vineyards. Bill moved his wife Virginia and family to Oregon that fall. The next year, he remodeled the house and converted the barn into a winery in time for their first vintage using Washington grapes. We met up with Bill in the winery's original barrel room on October 16th, 2020. Bill, thanks for letting us um, do this with you today back at the original stomping grounds. One of the things that I'm trying to understand in this series of interviews is what molded the people that ended up founding this wine industry. And a lot of the stories end up when somebody arrives in Oregon, but obviously you and many of the others who came to Oregon, I mean, six of the the first 10 came to Oregon from Northern California. Where did you grow up? And were you, did your family drink wine? Well, we can correct that. My family didn't drink wine. You know, it's, if historically you can look, and a lot of people who came out of the Depression era, they were not wine drinkers, really, if you look at the numbers, you know. But um, I was born and raised in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, born in, in Tulare, and raised in Visalia. And these are towns that are about halfway between Fresno and Bakersfield, given them location. Um, the, as I moved, I uh, going to college and when I kept moving north, and uh, I ended up in Cloverdale. Uh, this is a town north of Santa Rosa, about 40 miles or so. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. You had a chemistry degree? I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry, completed a major in mathematics, and had a minor in physics. So I was kind of seeped in the sciences. Um, So anyway, California was short of school teachers at that time. And they made a, uh, a provisional credential that a school board could declare an emergency and hire a provisional credentialed person. This wouldn't be a full credential that you could get a normal teaching job, but you could, you know, sort of assist these districts. So anyway, so I did that in Cloverdale. Well, the head of the school board in Cloverdale was uh, the office manager at Italian Swiss Colony Winery. And so when he saw that I was hired and was coming there, he notified the winemaker 
that they had hired someone with a degree in chemistry and the winemaker apparently was always looking for people that had a chemistry background. And so they called me up and said, you know, would you be interested in, in uh, coming up? And uh, we have some temporary jobs for the harvest season or we have some other positions. Um, we'd like to talk to you. So I said, you know, I knew nothing about the wine business, but I said, well, why not? You know? And so went there and, and was interviewed and was, was hired for one of these positions. And I was running a laboratory in the fermenting room. And, of course, that was a busy point at that time of the year. This was September, you know, and so they were very busy. And, um, and this was after a year of teaching. No, I was still, I was teaching. I was doing this on weekends and evenings and that, that uh, you know, when you're fresh out of college and you have no money, you'll take a job doing most anything, <laughs> but legitimate anyway. Uh, so anyway, I uh, did that and... For about six or eight weeks, but then I became more interested. And then, as the school year went along, I was not interested in continuing in that school district that was poorly run and a lot of problems. So then, in the spring, when I was going to be looking for another job, um, I went down to the winery and uh, said, "That uh, do you have any openings?" And the winemaker said. We do. We're looking for someone. You don't quite meet what we're looking for, but we know you and your work ethic and whatnot, and I will take a chance that you can do this job. And so what it was, I was going to be in charge of quality control in the bottling operation. And this was a big bottling operation. There were like seven bottling lines and wow. several thousand cases a day and whatnot. So anyway, so I did that. But the problem was, I, I, you know, I was only 22 years old. And the people working on this bottling line, uh, they were hardened criminals, I have to tell you. And, and it was kind of discouraging because the night foreman would come and say, Bill, you got to go out in the, in the parking lot. There's a problem out there. Well, I'd go out there because... I was the only salaried person working at night. So I was sort of de facto in charge, you know. So I go out there, and here's the forklift driver with a pallet of wine, and he's putting the wine in his trunk. And so, uh, you know, how do you deal with this at, when you're 22 years old and you've never been in charge of anything in your life, you know? So um, I talked to the plant manager and... Uh, he told me how to handle these things. He said, you go and pull their time card and, and they can't check out. So they'll go and scream at the office and whatnot. And we'll take care of it. You don't have to take care of it. You know? So that was a little bit of relief. So anyways, but then by the time two years went by, I just was tired of all this crap. And um, so I quit. And I went to San Francisco and got a job in quality control. And I can manufacturing plant. We made cans and screw caps and these sorts of things. And I was in charge of quality control and customer service. So I had out of the plant and in the plant and whatnot. And, and it was a nice job, really. I can't complain. But I then started 
you know, I really want to get back in the wine business. So so the the two years at Italian Swiss had actually switched a switch in your head and you you liked what wine was about at that point. And then the other thing is uh, something matured me when I changed jobs, you know, that you think you're escaping the problems sometimes that you're in. And all of a sudden I realized this, this company I was working for had the same problems that Italian Swiss Colony had. They just changed faces and names, you know. And when I realized that, it was kind of like, Bill, get out of town. You don't need more of that in your life, you know. And uh, so I called up the winemaker at Italian Swiss, and I told him I wanted to meet with him and uh, talk about my future. And he was a really nice guy. God, he was just super. And uh, so we met, and he said, Bill, you, you can do one of three things. He said, you can befriend somebody at a winery, a very active winery and follow in their footsteps. Two, you can apply for a job at our place. I'd hire you back in a heartbeat. Three, you can go to school and really learn. So I said to him, I said, well, um, what would you do? If you were 22 years old, And what would you do? He says, Bill, go to school. And so that was when I made the decision to go to Davis and get my master's degree. In those days, Davis didn't offer a master's degree in enology or viticulture. They do now, but they didn't at that time. This would have been uh, 1962. You could get food technology or related fields, but take all the wine courses. So that's what I did. So I have a master's degree in food science and technology. But see, I needed some coursework because I, since I didn't come through that program as an undergraduate, I needed some microbiology and a few things that weren't part of my chemistry uh, curriculum. So then, um, and this sounds maybe a little bragging, but I was kind of the fair-haired boy of the department because uh, the uh, of several things was I was one of the few people, and this was similar in Oregon, that had arrived with industry experience. So uh, the beginning class in winemaking, the chemistry part of it, I went to the first lab, and we had a, a, a tech that was, uh, you know. Anyway, he sends us off to do a reducing sugar using uh, sucrose. And I told him, I says, you can't do that. And he said, look, he says, I'm the one in charge here, not you. And I said, fine, I'm out of here. I left. I went and saw the professor. So I told the professor, I said, this guy wants us to do a reducing sugar with sucrose. Sucrose is a disaccharide. And you can only do reducing sugars with monosaccharides. He said, Bill, I'll go fire him. And you be the tech. So now I'm taking the class and I'm the tech also. You know? And uh, so that was an interesting term uh, for that class. You know? But, um, you know, it was kind of like here in Oregon. I was the first person to really come with industry experience 
uh, to Oregon right. of all the people that came up. And, and I'm not downplaying what they were capable of doing or whatnot, but I was the only one with true, you know, foot on the floor of the right. winery. While you were at Davis, at least one of those years, <clears throat> you overlapped with Lett and Curry. I'd, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about what that year was like, not only with Lett and Curry, but Winkler and Amorain were sort of peripherally involved in this conversation about Oregon, cool climate, whatever. And having not been there, of course, I, I don't know what that was like. Well, you know all the players here. And you can guess what it was like. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the, um, uh, the thing of it is that coming in there with the experience and background that I had and whatnot uh, really set me up first cabin. And in fact, some of the professors complained uh, to the head of the department that, that the industry was putting all their money in Bill Fuller. And was this a good investment or not? Because I got the scholarships that were offered there. I got student aid. I got a job. They hired me as a technician. Um, and so it was, um, it could be awkward at times. You know? I was kind of a um, sort of a mover and shaker type of person that I complained to the department about several things. One of them was that here we are, <coughs> students, that they want us to go out in the industry and represent the school, and they don't even let us participate in some things. Like uh, when you read reports about, you know, our panel, tasting panel, came up with this conclusion. Well, why aren't the students on the tasting panel? Where else are they going to learn how to taste wine and whatnot, you know, and stuff like that? And those things all got changed after I raised hell on. David came the same year that I did. So that would have been 62, 63. Right. That, mm -hmm. Yeah. And Chuck was already there. Right. He was the year before I arrived. But both of them left at that 63 time frame. And I was still there another year after that. Um, well, it, it was interesting. Um, <laughs> you know, Chuck was, a, as you well know, I'm sure, was a great pontificator. And uh, do you remember some of the meetings we used to have and he would lie down on the lectern table and start to tell you about something, you know. But the one thing that, that through these different times, we did tastings and we did different things and um, was that Chuck truly was convinced of Oregon as a place to go. Um, and that even got reinforced when he left, and he went to Alsace and spent that year in Alsace. And um, but David was a pre-dent student; he was going to be a dentist at the University of Utah, I believe it was. Lee Stort somehow captivated Dave and really pushed Dave in the direction 
because Dave was still kind of floating a little bit. The dental thing was out there, but maybe not, you know. Time went on that um, Chuck was basically uh, uh, wanting to be a climatologist, and his whole thesis was written on microclimatology and was never accepted by the school, to the best of my knowledge, anyway. But he had a concept, I think, in his mind, really, of an industry. Yeah. And, but he was a very abrasive person. And, and even at Davis, on the one hand, the abrasive personality, but on the other, some vision? Yes, really. Uh, buried in all, among all this stuff, you know. But um, then, and David Davis was more f- trying to find himself and what he wanted to do. But it was being massaged between Chuck and I and, you know, in our, a lot of conversations that we had. I guess that a lot of the stuff that I was concerned about is financing this whole thing. You know, how can I get in the wine business uh, without money? And uh, they went off to Europe and I had another year there. So Amarine, I did some projects for Amarine. He was the basically the analogy professor at Davis at that time. And well, but it was more than that. He was yeah. the Western world guru of wine. You know? But not vineyards, more on the wine side. More on the wine side, yeah. <clears throat> uh, but so anyway, so I did some tastings with him and, and learned a lot, I have to say. Now I'm going to graduate, or I think I'm going to graduate, but I got to leave because I had two kids and no money. <laughs> Fortunately, I got the scholarships that really supported me. Um, so I went to Amarine and I said, you know, what should I have for criteria for a job? I said, what would you look for? What kind of questions do you ask? And he said, one is you need a winery that has a following. Secondly, they're well-financed. Thirdly, that they're really nice people because you got to live with them, you know. And so then I went off, and then Amarine made arrangements for me to work the harvest of '63 at Louis Martini on weekends because I was still going to school. So I would drive over to St. Helena on on Saturday morning work all day Saturday, stay. And Martini's had a little cabin thing behind the winery that I could stay in. And then I would work on Sunday and go back to Davis. Um, and that work was was work. It was shoveling pumice. We had uh, fermenters that were six feet deep, concrete fermenters, and they were approximately 10 feet square. And... Um, they would hold 12 tons of grapes. You drain off the liquid, you've still got all the skins and whatnot there. Well, I would have to shovel those over the wall and we would have a basket press parked out there and they'd fall in the basket press. But I do have to say I was in better shape then than I am now. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's beside the point. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I did that. And then in the spring of... Uh, 64, that would be. Uh, I uh, was ready to leave Davis. So I contacted Louis Martini and said, you know, I'm looking for a job. I don't know, do you 
have an opening. Until that time, Louis Martini was the winemaker, and he had gotten it from his father, handed down. But he was also a graduate of the University of California in the 40s. Um, so then I uh, went, and uh, he said, uh, let me think about it. Then I got a letter from him about I don't know, four or five weeks later, and it says that we would like to offer you a job along the lines that we discussed. And whatnot. So I was really the first outside of family person to be involved in the winemaking at uh, Louis Martini. And as you know, I was there for 10 years and then came up to Oregon from there. Now, the path that sort of led me to Oregon was Amarine um, had a list because anybody in the world that wanted to get in the wine business in those days, you went to Amarine. And he had a list of people about, I don't know how many on the list, but probably a handful or so, that he would send people to go to talk to. And I was one of those people. And so I'd get all these interesting people coming through the my office at Martini. And um, one of them was Bill Malkmus. Bill Malkmus was in his pictures up there. Um, he wanted to start a winery, so we sort of started talking. Well, his background was only financial. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, so then we started talking and looking in places, and Oregon was on my list from the Chuck Corey, Dave Lett days, but we had a limited supply of money, so it had to certain meet certain parameters there. So then we uh, went to the foothills of the Sierras Mountains, uh, Plymouth, and up in that area. Uh, we went down the the peninsula where uh, some wineries were there, couple three, and looked at properties. We went in Anderson Valley. I mean, in Napa Valley, you were making Cabernet and a range of varieties, but you, this was not a winery that was fixated on cool climate varieties, per se. No. We made Pinot Noir. We made Chardonnay. Made some Gewürztraminer. But we weren't focused on those varieties. We were focused on Cabernet, pretty much. And so when you, when you and Malkmus were looking at properties, <clears throat> were you thinking about Pinot Noir at that point? Or were you more thinking about a business making wine? Probably a business making wine. But then that could be reshaped to what your location is. I mean, I was aware of the kind of locations will make certain types of wine. But I really hadn't focused only on one type or style of, of wine at that point. And, of course, Anderson Valley was probably a climate more closely to Oregon than other parts of Northern California. And at that point, you could see the, the direction up there with some, there were some small vineyard plantings. And so one of the highlights of my life to that point was I spent a day with Dr. Winkler, who was the guru of grape growing in the Western world. He wrote the, wrote the textbook and everything. And um, I got him 
got the extension enologist from Davis. I got Bruce Bearden, who was the farm advisor, I guess, that, you know, is part of the extension service in, in Ukiah, yeah, Mendocino County. And um, the four of us worked over that whole Anderson Valley very carefully because it kind of it appealed to me because the cooler climate grapes were getting more and more into my mind. And we were also had certain limitations on what we could afford to buy. And land was still cheap there compared to these other areas. Foothills of Sierras were still cheap land, you know, which and all those parameters changed as time went on. So we found a piece of property up there we really liked. It had, uh, I don't know, 12 or 15 acres of old growth redwood trees on it and, and had the, the fence, you know, that's, that's kind of like this through the whole property, split, hand-split redwood rails. So we decided we really liked it. And then we had a problem. My wife refused to move there. So now we have a problem. And so anyway, so that piece of property went off somewhere else. Then we're now back to Oregon. In 72, there was an ad in Wines and Vines, which is an industry publication. And it said, Oregon Vineyard Land. Hmm. So I called them up and uh, they said, yeah, we've got this piece of property and uh, we're in the nursery business and we've been growing pots, the five-gallon can pots for trees and we're getting out of that business. We're going to the little two-by-two pots for supermarkets and whatnot for other varieties of plants. And so we want to sell that piece. And the state nursery inspector, who was a Davis graduate, a plant person, he told them that there was some interest in Oregon vineyard land, and he thought this piece of property here was first class for vineyard. So that's why they advertised in this Wines and Vines. So um, Malcolmus, my partner, he came up and looked at it first. And then for the harvest of 72, one of our growers at Martini, um, considered one of the top growers actually in the North Coast area, he had a brother-in-law in Klatskanai, which is up on the river. And I didn't know where Klatskanai was or Forest Grove or any of these things, you know. So I was talking to him about it, and I said, you know, if those two towns are where this vineyard site is, is close, would you mind going over there and taking a look at it? Come back and tell me what you found. He said, sure, Bill. I always look for things to do with my brother-in-law in him. So he went there. He came back, and he said, Bill, fantastic. He said, I think you got a first-class piece of land there. You got wonderful slope. You got good exposures, kind of southwest exposure. And he said, I think really good. So anyway, so then that's how we followed up from there and acquired this piece of property. And we moved on in 73 to the property. You got the county to agree to give you a winery license before you finalized this purchase. 
Yeah, because it wasn't going to do us any good to own the land and not be able to have a winery, you know. And it wasn't It wasn't. Given. No, it wasn't a permitted use at that time. Yeah. The wineries were that new, you know. And uh, we talked with an attorney in Hillsborough about, you know, what kind of a route could we take with all this? And uh, so he said, ask for a variance to the rules. And that's what we did, and we got it. And so then we were ready to go at that point. So this was the sort of July of 73? Right. And you have to fix up the house and get enough equipment. Were you going to make wine that fall? Yeah, but we uh, obviously didn't have grapes. You know, and there was no Oregon grapes to buy no. at that time. No. We um, made arrangements uh, for some grapes from eastern Washington. So there was an old uh, Otis was his name. And he was involved in the juice business treetop juice and um, but he owned a vineyard that had been around for a long time but in those days you know you didn't see trunks like you see when you drive up our driveway you know so what they would do is bend a cane down and bury it through the winter once the cane got over four years old you had to cut it off because you can't bend it anymore you know and uh, that was, and the vineyard had Pinot Noir in it, interestingly enough, and had Chardonnay and Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc. So we made a deal with him to purchase the Pinot Noir and the Riesling and the Chardonnay. So that was our first crush. And that would have been in 1973. And then our first crop off of this property was 1975. Then because you planted in... 73. In 73 yeah. in the and spring, sort of summer? Yeah, early summer. Yeah. Not ideal time. And so we had a lot of lost plants because of we couldn't didn't have good watering capabilities. But we watered as best we could. You know? And... Um, See, one of the differences between this area and, say, Yamhill County is that the Yamhill soils are more clay-oriented, and this is more sand. Now, we had the soil tested, and this sand, the soil here is 25% silica sand. Meaning well, that the water would go right through it. Right. And you can, some years, you know, sufficient rainfall, you can plant a vineyard in Yamhill County and never water it, and it'll grow. You have to water here, no matter what, to get a vine started. Once you, the vines can get their roots down and have enough root area, they don't need to be watered. You know, but you've got to do that first two or three years to get them started. All the times I drove up here for meetings and whatever, I always wondered, why did you choose this place 
as, oppo as opposed to, say, Yamhill County or other parts of Washington County that were a little closer to Portland or a little closer to other wineries. I mean, this was, in those days, it was pretty far away from um, most of the other, I mean, you're, you were pretty close to Corey, but beyond that, there was quite a ways to the next people. Well, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, and if, if you take the vantage point of today and look back, we probably would be in Yamhill County because the Highway 99 is a tremendous source of tourists and whatnot there, and a lot of people going out to the coast and whatnot. But we um, weren't thinking that very well. Probably would be a criticism of us, you know. Well, I mean, nobody, nobody really thought about the need for customers to come <laughs> to a winery. Yeah. I, I mean, in fact, uh, I mean, Washington County, one of its claims to fame, the wineries here were the first to realize that both the need and perhaps the opportunity to attract people to wineries. You know, yeah, and that kind of thing, I think, led me to one of my top achievements, I felt, in Oregon, is the blue signs. Um, my wife did a lot of correspondence on it and uh, was part of the program. Uh, Bill Blosser and I pretty much carried the load of, of going out to meet politicians and whatnot. Because, see, one of the problems that we had is if a road like Highway 47 has federal money in it, the feds control what kind of signs you can put up on the thing. So in order to get those ga gas food lodging signs, the blue signs, you had to get permission from the feds to do this. And that whole program was pretty new in general, not just wineries being new. So I made a trip to Washington, D.C. and, and uh, testified to a Senate subcommittee. And that was an interesting experience. I, I'd never done anything like that before, you know, go and talk to somebody in Washington, D.C. On the subcommittee was a senator from Vermont. Can't remember his name now. And so he says, you know, he says, I don't understand what your problem is in Oregon. We don't have a problem in Vermont. Well, he, it's like shoving it at you, you know. And I, I guess I got a little excited, I was told. And I, I went and I pointed right at him and I says, you got Vermont exempt from the rules. So you don't have a problem. He shut up, never opened his mouth again the rest of the session, you know. Then eventually, when uh, Carter was president, you know, that we had uh, Goldschmidt was the Secretary of Transportation. Transportation. We got him then to write a rule, set a rule for us that we could get our blue signs. Well, anybody could, not just Oregon, yeah. Well, that was about the time of change in administration. So you had Carter going out and Reagan coming in. So um, Goldschmidt was out and somebody else was there. So now our change of regulations was just sitting on a desk, going no place. 
So uh, one of our grape growers and winery is uh, Scott Henry. Henry Winery in uh, Roseburg. Well, um, Sylvia, Scott Henry's wife, was on the Republican Central Committee. And so we talked to her about going to Reagan's office somehow and uh, get this thing moving along so we could get the blue signs. We felt they were absolutely necessary for our future. Because, just to be clear, because there was no, without the blue signs, particularly on state highways, there was no way to tell tourists that there was a winery that could be visited. That's right. That was finally the impetus that moved the thing along and and we got it approved. But uh, it was a struggle. It wasn't easy. But uh, that was an important uh, part. And and that kind of leads into another area, the industry as an entity. And we uh, had some problems. We didn't have an office, really. We had a mailing service. Remember the mailing service? And Just to put a little context around it, the industry in the 70s, the basically the what was originally the Oregon Viticultural Development Committee then became a grown-up com- uh, organization, sort of, yeah. <laughs> called the WCO, right. which is, I think, the Wine Grape Council of Oregon. Yeah. Wine-, Wine Growers Council. Wine Growers Council of Oregon, right. And, and, but that was still just the Willamette Valley. Right. There was another organization for Umpqua and perhaps even Rogue by then. Well, see, Corey was one of the movers of the WCO thing. Problem was that the attitude of the people in Roseburg, the Oregon Wine Growers Association, they were called, uh, was more social than scientific. And Corey felt very strongly we needed to have a scientific approach. And that was, was what was happening with the WCO. So anyway, so now we need legislative help. We've got our signs and we were beginning to grow up. But the problem now was the two organizations. So we went to a senator, Markley, who was in favor of the industry. You know, we were pretty much underfunded, the industry was. I mean, we were all short of cash. And, but sometimes that can be an advantage to you because we got sympathy in the legislature because we were the poor boys down the street. You know, and uh, it had a lot of negatives too, but then we can all conjure those up. But this legislative thing was important to us, very important. So then we... Um, decided that we would hold a big powwow. I was president of the, of the association at that time. And so I had some goals. I had a goal to have an office, so we'd have a mailing address and whatnot, uh, a marketing effort, you know, get someone or something. Um, we needed a lobbyist. Because all of us were kind of amateur lobbyists. We'd all, you made trips, I made trips. We all went down to Salem and, and argued with them, you know. 
But we needed professionalism. We had to move this industry to the next tier. And that was my goal as president. And um, so we held a meeting at Silver Falls Convention Center or whatever they called it. Yeah. And this was, is this the one that was in like February and there was snow on the ground and... No, that was another one. That, okay. That was kind of a little different. That was kind yeah. of a... Of a uh, was that the research retreat or something like no, that? No, kind of a marketing retreat okay. sort of thing. Um, there were really three meetings. The initial one was at Silver Falls. And, and sort of roughly the year, early 80s? Uh, yeah, 82 or 3. Are you thirsty, Dave? You know, that would be a lovely break from, from my palate. Well, what we, is that? We have a Chardonnay that I made because I'm a consulting winemaker at Willamette. You know? And so if anyone acquires one of these bottles that say vintage something, um, there's a little bit of BS about me here, right on the back, you know, and I've signed the label. <laughs> <laughs> and it's your 45th vintage? Yes, in Oregon. In Oregon. Mm-hmm. God. And um, and these grapes were right below the house out there, just that block. That's oh, that, all that, Draper, more South Slope. That's Draper clone in there, and um, might be one of the largest plantings of Draper clone in the state. I don't know. Uh, Let had some. Yeah. There's almost a whole other story connected yeah. with that. We're, we're, <laughs> we're on Silver Falls. Right. Thanks. Do you like that nice color there? Good color. Yeah. Pretty good wine, too. It's got Thanks a low, it has a low gag factor. <laughs> <laughs> really nice nose. So we start this meeting and we come up with a, a marketing person, Fred Delkin, and then we connected to him through his office, and we used his office as our permanent address. You want to write something to the wine growers? Phone number, office, Delkin. So anyway, so that gave us some permanent visibility. And then um, we hired a person to be a lobbyist for us, Bill Nelson. A microbiologist, I believe. Right. Who had done some work for wineries in the Eugene area. Yep. Had he had any experience doing lobbying? Uh, kind of quasi. I mean, it was, uh, he had done some sort of low-level things. But he was a good spokesman, though. Then, we now we need an organization with some money to run all this. So this is where we worked and created the Wine Advisory Board, basically. This would be an organization of, for marketing and research of wine, Oregon wine, um, in fact, we had some pretty heady discussions about how much marketing money and how much research money. Dave was the research crew, and I was the marketing crew. <laughs> but anyway, that uh, we uh, had some rather heady discussions about all of that. You know, then we were probably both right. I thought <laughs> in the end. <laughs> But, we just uh, needed more money. Yeah, we just needed more money. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we needed a vehicle to carry this through the legislature to raise some money. 
And we were willing to put a tax on grapes to do it. So Nelson uh, wrote the legislation, but Nelson was really clever because he put the taxing part one place in the legislation and the marketing and research monies and, what and whatnot. do with yeah. it someplace else. Someplace else. Yeah. So if it ever got under scrutiny, you could always let them look at our marketing plan and whatnot and not have them look at the tax thing necessarily. But it was a clever idea. And, it, and I think it helped us. So now the meeting was over and we'd done all these things. And so then Markley, who had agreed to carry our legislation, but he put a kicker in it. It, it has to be a total industry, not two different organizations and whatnot. It's got to be one organization. He says, I'm not going to deal with two. So then we had a meeting of the industry and the swept wing in Albany, there by the airport in Albany. Remember, it was a, a kind of a motel restaurant thing. We met there. It's gone now. It doesn't even exist anymore. But anyway, it's where we did hold our meeting. Bill Blosser and I worked. I was not the president. because That was the next year. That would have been 83. So Blosser and I were working with the president of the organization to put these two things together. I tend to be a verbal person, and, and I can go toe-to-toe with anybody. But I don't write very well. It, you know, my whole background is a family from Appalachia, and I was the first person that went to school. No one had gone to school. And so I swear, if you don't hear good English, you're not going to speak good English. And, of course, I never heard good English, you know. It's down the road a fur piece, you know. But <laughs> that, uh, so uh, that was probably where Adeline and I, Alzheimer uh, and I had the, our really big exchange. He didn't come to the meeting, but he wrote a letter. And then I peed and moaned about it because I can take him on one-on-one, but I can't argue with his letters, you know. And uh, so that was a big thing. You know, it's meaningless in life, totally. You know, we both can look back and laugh at it all now, you know. And uh, These were make-or-break conversations at the time. (laughs) Right. So what we voted on was how to divide this money up. We went to one-third of the money for marketing, one-third of the money for research, and one-third that could shift either way depending on the needs of the industry at that time, you know. And, And that formula worked, you know. I remember one of my less thoughtful moments. I yelled at Daniels because he was he was talking about you know the research thing, and I said, "How in the hell do you know they don't break all your test tubes?" You know, <laughs> it was just an emotional outburst. <laughs> but um, so anyway, it's then at that point the industry was getting started, really started, and had meaningful. And I don't know what the current budget is of the wine board, but but it must have a significant amount of money to yes, look at. I think three or so million dollars. Really? Once you add all the grants and everything else together. Yeah. Wow. But just think what we could have done with that much money. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I mean, we 
Nobody could have figured out what to do even at that time because it was it, it was such a different universe. differences between Roseburg and presumably Southern Oregon and the Willamette Valley. As you were here in Washington County, did you see significant differences between what was going on here and in Yamhill County? Or was that kind of two variations on the same thing? Well, there were kind of variations on the same thing, yes. But the thing of it is that we had... You know, two or three kind of significant wineries there in Washington County, where there were more than that in the Yamhill area. And so just sheer numbers play a role in all of this. I think down inside, no matter we agreed or disagreed or whatever, we still were looking at creating an industry and seeing that it's viable. I had a line that I used to use when I give talks. And one of them was that selling wine away from here, out there, is that, you know, that if Robert Mondavi goes to talk to some people or to a group or something, all he has to do is talk about Robert Mondavi because everybody knows the Napa Valley and California and whatnot. And when I go out to talk to people, I've got to explain to them about uh, Oregon and where it's located and um, and we're still not, you know, having to deal with the natives and with this and with that, you know, and I hope I have their attention long enough to talk about my wine. I, I think the San Jose Mercury uh, printed my little ditty about Robert Mondavi. So I get a letter from the head of the public relations of Robert Mondavi Winery chastising me about saying those things, because Robert Mondavi really promotes the whole industry. And, and I thought, geez, you guys, you must have nothing to do to pick on a little pissant like me <laughs> making these statements, you know, and uh, that it, it shouldn't be, <laughs> who am I, you know, sort of thing. Uh, but, but that's the kind of things that we ran into constantly, you know. But one of the things that I was very adamant about through all these years is the little guys, the really small wineries, uh, some of them objected to money being spent mostly by the big wineries. Well, big is relative. Uh, big here is small in the world, you know. So um, the thing that um, you had to remember, I keep telling them, every case of wine I sell means less cases for you to compete against. You know, and their job gets easier if I have certain successes. And, and it's not a matter of that, that I'm bigger than you, therefore I'm getting more advantages that you're not getting, you think. You know, the piece of the pie is only so big, you know, then you start cutting more pieces out of the pie and you have more competition and you have, you know, more marketing difficulties and whatnot. You know, and so you have to remember those things when you talk about the wine growers and how they divide their money up and so on and so forth. You know, 
you know, some of these people you can talk to and some you can't. Clearly, your background was in chemistry, winemaking. Once you came here, you had a vineyard to run. Once you had grapes, you had, and, and you had wine, you had something to sell. And you had a business that needed to be run. How did you, how did you master those other skill sets? And, and what became not only the, the most difficult, but the most important for you to master? You know, I look back now and wonder how I did it. <laughs> you know, really. It was a lot to do, you know. I had never driven a tractor before. So that was one of the first things I had to do. I had to drive the tractor to plow the field to plant the grapes. And I remember one day out below the driveway there, I was driving along and um, just my mind off someplace. And I went going down and back and down and back. And I came back and I stopped. There's the disc. You know, I, the disc had come disconnected from the tractor on the way down, and I didn't even realize it. And I turned around, and I'm coming back the other way, and there's the damn disc. You know? <laughs> but uh, my background, family background, was in running a successful business. They were very successful. No education, very bright, but they knew how to treat people and how to run a business. They ran a used furniture business. I was raised by an aunt and uncle, and uh, my uncle was uh, very sharp. When to you know, buy and not buy and sell. And that I remember at the end of the war, and this guy comes in there, and he tells my uncle, because washing machines, they just didn't exist almost at the end of the war. And... So he tells my uncle that he will bring a rail car load of washing machines and park them right on the siding, which was a half a block from the store, at this much per machine. Are you interested or not? And my uncle says, I'll take it. We had to move all those machines out of the the boxcar into the store and start selling them. And out of that came the first laundromats because there were no machines available. And these were the old ringer type, you know, you run your hand in it and oh, it goes yeah. up to your arm. <laughs> but uh, anyway, all those kinds of things being done at home as a child growing up, they impress upon you how to do things. And, and so I learned a lot of lessons there in getting along with people and and, and I remember in New York City, I was, like, I was on the east side and um, was a wine shop. And said, you know how in New York City they have ladders that roll around the wall and they go up. So I go in this wine shop. Salesman takes me there, introduces me to the owner. And he's up on the ladder. And it, and it was kind of like, hi, back to what I'm doing. So then I go the next year same place and he went down three or four steps and shook my hand so then the third time I go he gets off the ladder and says hi and talks to me so now the fourth time I go he says so what have you got to taste and I said oh I got this and this and this and uh, 
So then he gives me this little lecture about how it's impossible to buy properly aged wines. They're just not available. I don't see samples of them. So now we're into my wines that he's tasting. And he tastes the Gewürztraminer. As he looks at the bottle and the vintage, and he says, wow. He said, you know, this is about a year older than the ones that I'm seeing in the marketplace. And I thought, you know, I wanted to slam him and say, you just gave me a lecture how you can't buy wine that's properly aged, and I'm showing you one that is. But I thought, you know, Bill, you're not going to make a lot of brownie points doing that. (laughs) But that's the kind of things that, you know, after walking, if anyone wants to find out if they're a salesperson or not, Cold calls in midtown Manhattan will tell you if you're a salesperson or not. You're going to be asked to leave. They're going to be thrown out. You're going to uh, sit down. Let's have a drink. You know, I mean, you just don't know. Uh, You're going to get the whole gamut. Um, And I can remember going back to the hotel and propping my feet up and getting a glass of wine and saying, uh, you know what? I think in my next life, I'm going to sell something that people want. (laughs) <laughs> you know, bread, bread, for instance, you know. But, uh, you know, that's just the way the thing functioned. You know, selling was, if you don't sell it, that's not a good, you know, going to work. It, you know, it's, it's like you can make the greatest wine in the world and it's not worth a damn if it doesn't sell. Period. And anybody that's looked at what's available in the marketplace particularly small wineries, because it's a problem for them. There's an awful lot of wine sold that's not that great, as we all know. But there's a customer for every bottle of wine. Just some more customers are more difficult to find than others. One of the things that we've had a conversation about and is the difficulty that married couples had, particularly in these early days, staying together through this founding period of the wine industry. And six of the 10 families ended up being divorced, uh, both of us. Was that something about the difficulty of the wine business or just the luck of who we happened to marry? What's your take on that? Well, I think it's both. You know, we came here in 73. I mean, you were married when you arrived here. Right, right. okay. So in 73, I'd been married for, uh, let's see, 28 years, I guess. And um, so it wasn't a new marriage. But never had the same things to do. We had kids. I had a job. Wife took care of the kids. Um we had, you know, regular hours and vacations and, and whatnot. So life was kind of smooth and just rolling along. And now we come here and there's a whole different set of demands of you. The things that you were describing earlier about grape grower, winemaker, salesman, blah, blah, blah. And then different aspects of one's personality shows up when you have these demands on your life. It's like a man and a woman can work side by side. And some people are successful at that and some people aren't at all. Because when two people 
go off in the morning to their jobs. They come back. They talk about the day. Well, that day gets filtered. Did you screw up that day? Well, you're not going to tell your spouse that, yeah, I screwed up today, you know. But when you're working shoulder to shoulder, you don't have that escape. Your spouse is going to see that screw up that you did. And you're going to have to explain it. Some things you don't want to explain. (laughs) But anyway, but you see what I'm getting at, though, that a lot of personality traits begin to cloud the picture a little bit versus just the job or the industry or or whatever. I know one of the things that that played a role in, in our marriage was the time that I spent for the industry. There were a lot of hours that um, you have to put those hours along with the hours you got invested in, in your business. You know, and balancing that's very hard. The industry, in my case, almost took on as important a role as the business at times. And so you suffer all the ramifications of that sort of thing. Do you think money was also part of what was going on? <laughs> I think for many people, yes, that it was. I mean, one of the things that uh, I've known for some time, but is sort of being reinforced with this series of, of talks, is nobody had money. Yeah. I mean, everybody was working another job, or the spouse was working another job, or building their own equipment or scrounging for this or that. I mean, there was no easy way about it. Erath and I used to share a lot of equipment because, you know, you have equipment that you only need occasionally, you know, like labeling equipment and things like that. So we used to truck back and forth a labeler, you know. And uh, so there was some of that going on. Uh, to sort of circumvent the, the, the dollar issue and where you could. It, there's just no question about it. When you go to wineries today and you see the young winemakers and whatnot, um, they have a whole different life than we had. Just no question about it. You know, in the harvest time, until we had our own grapes, which was, you know, a five or six year period, the Washington grapes, I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and drive my car out to Pasco, leave it at the U-Haul place, get a van, drive out to the vineyard. The grapes would be picked already, stacked up in boxes, and I'd have to load those boxes into the van, drive back to the winery, spend a couple of days crushing and pressing and whatever they needed, put the empty boxes in the van, drive it back to the vineyard, leave the empty boxes, go to get my car that had been sitting there for two plus days and drive home. Well, I did 14 tons that first year that way with an old-fashioned basket press that you crank. Well, these guys today, they've got the latest press and the latest this, and they have no idea of that as, as part of what we had to do. But, you know, it sounds bad, and it was bad. I don't know. Somehow you feel you accomplished something, and that's something I don't know is available to everybody today, particularly, you know, and, uh, and there was satisfaction there. You know, we 
the house there, I lived in that house from 73 to 97, or 95, excuse me, 95. And, you know, after one of those really long days and and whatnot, to sit on the porch there and just watch the sunset and have a glass of wine, nothing could beat that life at that point. Could have made a lot more money doing something else, but... I have no regrets, you know, really. And, uh, you know, it's a, a lot of satisfaction. You had kids. Yep. <clears throat> Did they ever show any interest in the business? No, I, I think the problem was the things that we've talked about that were negative about the business, they saw that bigger maybe than it was. They're wine drinkers as adults. I, I, I guess you know there, a lot was expected of them at times. Yeah. Were they some of the grunt labor? Many times. Uh, you know, give me an example of kind of thing that would happen after nine months of every two to three weeks would call on Safeway. I was the first Oregon wine in Safeway, so I go the, the on this. That's kind of last trip sort of thing. And, and the buyer says, okay, Mr. Fuller, we're going to take on two of your wines. Wow. And so they uh, would uh, say, okay, we want 75 six-bottle packs. Oh, shish. Six-bottle packs. Okay, I'll get the kids out there right away making six-bottle packs. <laughs> and... Uh, delivered them to their new warehouse in Clackamas. That was when they moved down there. And um, about two weeks later, I came back to the Safeway office and I said, uh, you know, that 75 six-bottle packs, that's not enough packs for every store. You must have uh, some subsets of stores. And the person that we do, we have the A stores and whatnot. Oh, can I see a list of those stores I could have? And she said, sure. Give it to me. So I threw it in the glove compartment. So the next time I was in Salem on wine growers business, uh, I went down South Commercial there. And remember, there was a Y in the road. And there was a Safeway right there in the middle. And, oh, I'm going to see so I, if that Safeway is one with the wine. So I opened the glove compartment, look at the list. Yeah, it is. Yeah, on, according to the list. So I go in the Safeway store and ask for the manager and give him my business card. And, and uh, I said, you know, you're, I don't see our wine on your shelves, but it is available to you in your warehouse. And he said, well, I don't do the wine my assistant does. And I said, well, is he here? Yeah, he is. So now you've got the assistant. So you've got to do your song and dance again. Give him a card and tell him the same thing. And he says, oh, we've got it. You do? Where? In the back room. And I said, well, I don't think it sells real well in the back room. And he says, I'm waiting for the gallo salesman to tell me where to put it on the shelf. And that was my exposure to supermarket selling. First time. Because, in fact... The big companies, either the distributors or in this case, a big winery, do the schematics that say what goes in every space on the shelf. Right. They don't do their own. 
So I, I remember one time, um, eventually, when you're out selling, you, you begin to know who all the salespeople are from different other companies. And so one day I went into Safeway, the, actually the uh, one in Forest Grove, and out were two of the Gallo guys coming out. So I said to him, I said, okay, guys, how'd you screw me today? Where did you put my wine on the shelf? He says, Bill, we like you. We put your wine in a good slot, you know. <laughs> you know? And, uh, but that was, uh, it was a learning experience, too. You know, there were lots of them. In the 90s, what you were doing here was, I mean, you'd been doing it for 20 three years or something, 24 years. And I presume that you were getting older and trying to figure out what was next. What evolved for Tualatin and for you uh, in the 90s? You mean in the end? Or? Yeah. Well, basically, I uh, lost, basically. Because um, Malkmus, the who was the funds of getting us started. And my ex-wife sort of ganged up on me. She wanted to sell as fast as she could. And Malcolmus wasn't really excited because Malcolmus wasn't getting his ego massaged. Living in San Francisco as an investment banker, had his money here. I didn't need an ego massage. I got enough of as it was, you know. I. And so I wasn't out trying to get my ego massaged. And uh, that uh, I was not a very happy point in my life. And so um, that they sort of wanted to sell the business and move on. And uh, it was a difficult time for me personally. Yeah. But, but you know, life goes on. And... Uh, the thing of it is that uh, Willamette then hired me to be in sales. Willamette Valley Vineyards. Yeah. And uh, so I was doing sales. But then harvest time was coming. You know, I'd made a lot of trips to Europe through the years. But I'd never been able to be there at harvest time because I had a harvest. So I went to one of the managers at Willamette uh, Vineyards and and I said, you know, fire me. And they said, Bill, we have no reason to fire you. I said, oh, yes, you do. I want to go to Europe at harvest time, and I want to draw unemployment. I can't draw unemployment if I quit. And so, anyway, so they sent a letter that they no longer needed me, you know. In 97, I spent a portion of that year's harvest time in Europe. And one of my favorite wines is Gewürztraminer. And uh, when you come up the driveway, those big trunks you see, those first vines, that's Gewürz. Planted them in 73. So I spent a week in Alsace. Rented an apartment for a week and and a winemaker at that sip. Well, the wife is from McMinnville. Oh. They met and hooked up and got married and had a couple of kids, and so English wasn't an issue, and the husband spoke perfect English, and uh, 
so I just spent the week with them. She found the apartment for us and spent a week with them. Actually, Erath knew them, and so he introduced me to them, and that's how I got connected up there. So I saw the whole thing from the ground up. And the part that was really eye-opener is we had pretty good success with converts from here. We, uh, the, at a peak, we sold about 2,000 cases a year. That's a lot for converts. Those guys weren't doing anything different than I was. Because I'd been there enough times before in off-season and picked up little tippets about things, and I'd adjusted some of my winemaking to match theirs. But the grapes are different, you know. So just a side note, I found a great Gewürztraminer in the U.S., upstate New York, a place mm. called Weiss. A German guy that's dry, it's aromatic, and really nice. And not bitter. No, not bitter, which is intriguing. Yeah. So again, the grapes are important. And where you grow them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But... Uh, it's been an exciting life, though I have to say it. It's, we and our kids were raised in, uh, you know, through different periods of time of of living here. Yeah, it's like one of the school teachers in Forest Grove said, "You know, love the Fuller kids. They're not cookie cutters." <laughs> <laughs> I uh, have been an advocate, still am. You heard it today, even from me of getting the story of the industry out, you know. And that's more than just the individuals. You know, I was born here and raised over there and went to school here, you know, and started working on this winery or something. But, you know, there's more to it than that. You know, we have the essence of the people that create a lot of this. And, you know, the... Look at the different styles that people have in this whole thing. You know, you've been close enough to most of us at one time or another and dealt with us. You know, uh, that, you know look at to Corey and Let. Then they're two of the original people, no question about it. You know, when I came here, I probably knew more about them than anybody because I'd spent a year with them. But look at their approaches. Their approaches were different. Dave has uh, had a very soft approach in many ways. It, he was very uh, easy, approachable, and, and whatnot, you know. Uh, where Corey was more abrasive and, and uh, whatnot. But, but he definitely had goals for the industry. And, and even though their two approaches were quite different, they still wanted to see the whole place grow up, you know, let's get real about all of this. And I think I'm right, uh, was smoother than Corey, but I think some of my concepts of the industry came from Corey because he was, I think, wanting to establish an industry here. Do you know how, like some regions in France, uh, you know, say Jagondas in the south of France, they have an emblem that's blown in the glass for their region. That was one thing that was Corey wanted to do. He wanted Oregon to have a bottle that said Oregon, you know. I don't know if that's worth its cost or not. I have no idea, you know, but it's potentially, 
could be something, you know. And one of the things that I did was I hired Clancy, Terry Clancy. Terry Clancy was tremendous popular in Europe and whatnot for uh, setting up marketing plans. He'd worked for Gallo, right? He did work for Gallo at one time, yeah. When he was in college, he worked for Gallo. And this is what Gallo was always wanted to, to have a market survey of the, what percentage of the market did they have. And so what he did was every Sunday morning, he would go around to all the garbage cans of the fraternities and sororities and how many bottles were Gallo, you know. And then he had turned a report in. You know? And he said that was his first job with Gallo. <laughs> but he, he was uh, just a big, friendly Irishman. He wrote a tremendous report. Yeah, he was hired by the... Wine Advisory Board. I was in charge of the marketing <coughs> branch of the Wine Advisory Board for several years. And that was one of the things Doyle Henman and I interviewed uh, several people to, about that, and uh, we hired him. And just was a great guy. He stayed in our cottage here. He came to dinner at the house, and and uh, John Eagle was here. John Eagle was a wine guy from Southern Oregon. He's no longer involved, but and he's a riot. Eagle is, and these two guys. You couldn't eat because you were laughing so hard. It broke, <laughs> broke us up. And, and, uh, but, you know, think about all the publications around about the Oregon wine industry. And, and there's none that's, that's, well, maybe that's a pretty broad statement, but they're pretty far and few between that, that really talk about it with any, without a slant of some sort. You know, they have kind of a, favorite whatever you know this potential what you're doing here excited me I don't know if you got that impression when you called me about the whole thing but I was excited really I'm not even sure we understood where this was leading, but each of the people that we've talked to with, with sort of thinking it over in advance has kind of taken the conversation in a direction, no, which, is, which is great because one thing we do not have is everybody doing the same thing. These are very, very different conversations. I'm bad. Um, I think one of the things that you pointed out is that that I don't believe anybody else has spoken to is the amount of time that it took out of your life to build the common industry, the industry organizations, the the things that we had become known for didn't just happen. Oh, right. Well, they had to have push behind them or they wouldn't have happened. Right. Know? You know, everybody brings different skills to the table. And that's why I felt that a person that was easy for me to work with that had skills that I didn't have was Blosser. Because Blosser has that kind of uh, the ability to write things and really say something, you know. And also he had the governmental 
concepts down and, and just a lot of, of, of things that were just not in my skill set at all. And, and so I thought we did pretty well together on a number of projects. You know. But of course, he's one of the divorcees. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, a number of us spent a lot of our lives building the things that we now look back at as the industry. Well, you know, one of the things, if I can say, make this statement without you killing me, okay, that your skill set was more like a lawyer's, you know, in terms of writing and, and pointing things out and whatnot. And uh, I don't know if I'm more sensitive than other people or not, but but people that had these specific skill sets, I felt I could identify them pretty easily. And... and so what I would try to do is use the one that I needed that skill set for to deal with the next guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have the feeling that this conversation is just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, you know. Yeah. Well, this is why I think that uh, maybe we talk somebody into funding it. Um, then get uh, maybe the Wine Advisor Board, make a presentation to them, the, the, the wine board, I guess they call it yeah. now. Um, you know, getting more than one winemaker or one original people, right. maybe three or four, and you just sort of banter back and forth. Right. Because we all, we all see things from different vantage points. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. As I recall, the first time I met him was at the house uh, one of the uh, meetings of the WCO or... Or even the, before, the yeah. ...group before that yeah. was at your house there uh, in Newburgh, out on the yeah. road. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about that for a minute. But, uh, yeah, I did not, and I thought, you know, why is this guy coming here to do this? That's crazy. I, I guess I had the reaction to you doing it like a lot of people had to me. So like neighbors out here used to say things like, uh, what are you going to do in the, the year of the green tomato? And I said, well, I guess we'll pick green grapes, you know. But, uh, you know, but, but I, I do remember meeting you and Jenny there at your, at your house. Weren't you uh, like maitre d' or something at yeah, the... At La Omelette. La Omelette, yeah. Wine store, yeah. At the, the horse maker yeah. restaurant. Remember that, you know. But I was just trying to think of, of, of probably the first area that we we really got closer together was when we started working on the putting the industry together and getting that sort of stuff. I mean, one of the things that you must have been involved with was the labeling rules. That, oh, yeah. Because Lett was responding to you bringing grapes from Washington and was freaking out that uh, we needed to somehow make sure that Fuller didn't pull the wool over everybody's eyes and pretend that these were Oregon grapes. I, I, <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, but he ticked me off. I tell you, he went around town and told people, that's not an Oregon winery. Don't, you know, mistake that. You know. And then what, two years later, he bought Washington grapes. You wanted to come and shove them down him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because it really was, because he made it very difficult for us to do business in Portland. So our initially, uh, mostly 
sales were in Eugene and Corvallis in Salem because he hadn't worked those markets in the same tier that he was working the Portland market. Because you had, what, two or three places that were selling most of the wine in Portland? Yeah, the, the fine wine shops or yeah, right. a couple of restaurants, but yeah. not much. Yeah, and, and we didn't have access to those because of his bad-mouthing the thing. Mm. You know? But I don't think that that one reaction I described earlier about I could argue with you about things, but when you put it on paper, I was dead, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, nostalgia doesn't necessarily tell you what really happened, you know? No, I mean, we all remember what we want. That's right. No question. Yep. Well, and completely. It, yeah. Different personalities uh, play a role in this. Is your personality's a softer approach, but you can be pretty aggressive on writing. <laughs> the, uh, but but in terms of face to face arguing or something, you you think about what you're going to say and you kind of you know make sure it's going the direction you want it to. But you didn't shoot the other guy yet. <laughs> you throw him under the bus when you write a story about it, see? <laughs> uh, Yikes. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, I'm a big advocate of this, you know, bantering and doing it in a way to get some recorded history because there's not a lot of really good reported history. No, and I'm I'm glad our team came up with this idea. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, really gave it really us. Is. Um, yeah, and and I I think it meshes with the idea of celebrating a 50th anniversary, albeit of a real estate purchase. Um, it's a it's a marker of time and a significant one for us. And what better way to do it than to really talk about that period, and. Um, how it led to where we are today. Well, you know, uh, when you were talking about the uh, point in time that you wanted trying to choose what the point in time, uh, that, that gets like when people start talking about, you know, who was first or second or third or last or whatever, all you have to do is look at the bonded winery numbers. They're sequential, yeah. you know, and uh, you can tell who was Right. The, the one that really isolates me is the Tualatins was 55, Ponzi's 56. And everybody puts Ponzi ahead of Tualatin in terms of the, and, you know, maybe they were here ahead of us, but they didn't be commercially before us, you know. They didn't have a bonded winery. Yeah. So you can choose different criteria you know, you could say, you know, when did they plant the first grape or do this or do that? I don't know. But uh, but you you do the innuendos. There's certainly, uh, this is the wineries that were first and second and third and fourth. And that may or may not be true. The Blosser, you know, they came quite a bit after the first part. It was like, what, two years almost. Yeah, 77 yeah. was when they first made wine. Yeah. yeah. So you do have some misstatements, I call them. Yeah, and I, I mean, we kind of did that. Um, I, I guess the, I guess the real question is, where the wine industry is today is 
I mean, I know I couldn't have imagined the progress that had been made. And I can't believe anybody who would say that they could imagine that. But what elements of this couldn't have been achieved without us working together? That's difficult to say, exactly. But I think it made a big contribution in the, the big picture. There may be some little exceptions here or there or whatnot. But I think overall, it was cooperation. We couldn't have created the Wine Advisory Board without cooperation. And you know we had enough people objecting. You remember those days, you know? Just something I'm just going through my mind now um, is most people don't realize that I had the first wine from Oregon, the first wine in the Wine Spectator Top 100 Wines for the year, Chardonnay. You know, and most people don't realize that. They think it's Pinot Noir and, you know, and right. somebody else got it. But it was my Chardonnay. We worked really hard on Chardonnay because, you know, one of the things when we started, Chardonnay ripened later than Pinot Noir. We can finally got the crop balanced and the level of thinning that we did to get Chardonnay ripe at the same time as Pinot Noir. But it took a lot of work. It just didn't happen. Down at, at uh, Willamette, I'm making 250 cases of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir every year from grapes that I planted. And I have four. Yeah, I have four rows up there in the Pinot Noir that I take my fruit from. You know, for me personally, I, I, I feel some rewards for the effort that we did, all of us, you know. And, and I felt that I played a role in some of it. Uh, I was kind of miffed at uh, Linfield. Is the, you know, this is, Linfield is, you know, depository for all industry stuff and history and whatnot. And they did the videos. Well, I was their 50th video. And I thought, you know, I felt that I had a bigger role in what the industry did than 50th. I mean, they had interviewed waiters before me. And I was a little upset, I have to say, that just being honest. I, I think the industry has come a long way. And probably the, maybe a big contributor to all of this is the influx of money. You know, wineries have marketing money. They have uh, equipment purchasing, and they can be the latest of whatever's happening in the world, the wine world. Well, we didn't have that as such. We, we, you know, with this undercapitalization that we were in, and so I think that these are the sorts of things. You brought a collection of some of the older wines that, or the bottles that they were in, um, including, what, the first wine you made? Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, empty, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that we really have here the evolution of our label. And uh, this is actually uh, the first wine that we made from this vineyard here was the 75. Pinot Noir. And I love the price. Yeah, 
$5.80. You can't even get a glass of today's <laughs> The other thing is that um, this one's a little unusual. In 1980, the Rose Cup races um, used our bottles of wine with this sticker on them celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Rose Cup races. And that, uh, so everybody that was a winner got one of these uh, bottles. And I had this one. I kept one just for myself, even though I didn't drive in a race. Um, but a driver came to the tasting room one day who was a winner and saw this. And he says, I'll autograph it. So I have Richard Gordon here. And uh, he uh, autographed the side. He was car number 79, and he was first in the GT2 series. Wow. Yeah. This is the wine that was best of show in London, England, International Wine and Spirits Competition, that uh, competed against about 1,000 wines from all over the world and was first place trophy. Yeah. And the trophy now after sitting in my living room for umpteen years, is now in the tasting room at Willamette, up by the bar. And then this label was the first label from this tree thing. And then this is the, was the last one. You see we put a double ring around the trees and we changed the type style, the font, and cleaned it up a little bit, the label. Cool. Thanks for taking us through that history. And I want to introduce you, David, to somebody who's been an integral part of grape growing here at Tualatin. Um, I hired him when he was 17 years old. Wow. And uh, That's cool. Yeah. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. 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 17 is when you started here? I was, uh, I was 16. No, I was 16. Yeah, I got here in uh, 1979, like around April 15. Um, I was, uh, yeah, and I turned 17 in June. So I was actually <laughs> 16. One of the things is that um, between 73 and uh, 95, I lived in the house here, and Efren's living in that house now since 95. And, uh, and also, it's exciting to us uh, here to uh, know he was an illegal immigrant when he came here. And uh, he uh, made a couple of trips back to Mexico, thanks to the U.S. government. But uh, anyway, um, he is now a citizen, and I think it's exciting. And he deserves a lot of credit for the job he's done here through the years and is now a citizen of this country. I, I think, for me, one of the saddest things about our industry is that the people like you who have spent so much of your life and have worked so hard have not gotten as much credit as you deserve, you individually and you as a representative of people who have come here from Mexico. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that you were able to introduce us um, just because of all the symbolism that, that stand behind your longtime work with Bill. 
Well, you know, the yeah. thing of it is that it's exciting for me to be able to do this because uh, I realized it didn't fit your format exactly, but I think that Efren needs some recognition for what he's accomplished. Mm. Plus, I have a leverage on when the grapes for my wine gets picked because I know the person doing the picking. You know, that uh, Efren will talk to me and He'll say, well, when do you want your grapes? And I said, well, I want them after they're ripe. <laughs> and not when the winemaker, I'm not the winemaker, so I, but, so I can choose them myself. So uh, years, uh, two years ago, I guess it was, they, uh, they were going to pick the Pinot Noir block where my four rows are. And uh, so Efren tells me they're going to pick. And I said, well, they're not ready. Not to my standards. And so uh, I said, can you keep those four rows for another week? And he said, yeah, we can do that. You know. So anyway, so then the winemaker wanted to know why the four rows were left. <laughs> and, and so Efren tells him, well, Bill wanted them left. You know? So then I show up for a tasting the next year. And though well, we got a couple wines for you to taste here, Bill. And so we tasted, and he said, well, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, this glass is much better than the other one, and the grapes were riper and whatnot. Then it was kind of like, damn, Bill, you weren't supposed to be able to pick that out. But it was your four rows. You know? but, uh, so that was an, Good. Anyway, thank you, David, Phil, for the opportunity to have yeah. Efren here, thank because you. I think that, uh, yeah. you know, he was awarded the wine board's first oh, yeah. uh, uh, immigrant person. To, yeah, and that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I feel really uh, lucky that you know to meet Bill because uh, you know he taught me a lot. Um, maybe he haven't told you, but I I, I worked with him uh, 14 years uh, make, making wine. Uh, but first, I started working uh, uh, in the vineyard. And then, uh, you know, one year he lost uh, the person who was uh, uh, helping crush the grapes. So that person had to, you know, leave for emergency to California. So I asked him for the opportunity to work inside a cellar. So we, yeah, we, I, uh, we worked for 14 years. Making was that, that what it was? 14 yeah. years. Fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So he taught me a lot, you know. I, I never went to school to learn how to make wine, but I, I learned enough, you know, from him. Right. Well, and there isn't one route to making wine. <laughs> Everybody has their own route. He actually knew what he was doing. Me, not so much. <laughs> Great anyway, to meet you, you today. Thank you, Efren. Well, thank you. you thank and you. Uh, glad you could join us. Yeah, thank thanks. You. So, uh, Bill, thanks again for today. Uh, thanks for opening the bottle of Chardonnay and for helping us understand your role, but also the the role that the industry of, of the industry working together has had to get us where we are. Yes. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Founder Stories, the podcast. This episode was produced by Adelsheim Vineyard in partnership with House Below Productions. New episodes are released monthly, and you can find them on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. 
Visit our website, adelsheim.com slash 50 years to watch full interviews of David Adelsheim with the other founders of the Willamette Valley wine industry. And join us as we pay homage to half a century of lofty dreams, pioneering spirits, and world-class wine.